0: Welcome to A New Republic, An Oral History of the Indian Constitution. A few days before the 23rd of November 1938, the date of the Darbar and the birthday of the Raja, Morris Friedman was seen in a state of feverish composition. Two days before the birthday, Morris asked for a sheet of clean paper. He then wrote very carefully on it and said, to Francis and me, read this. We are going to show it to the Raja Sahib. Both of us read, with mounting excitement, what Morris had produced. It was a draft of a declaration to be proclaimed by the Raja of Aund on his 70th birthday, giving complete freedom to my people and announcing the appointment of a committee to make a new constitution for this transfer of power to the people. On Darbar Day, the 70th birthday of Raja Rao of Aund and the 29th year of his rulership of this tiny state, Word had spread that there was going to be an important announcement at the Darbar. Bhavan Rao, the last reigning Raja, 10th in the dynasty of the Panth Pratinidhis of the Satra Chhatrapati, renounced on 23rd November 1938 all his powers and the power of his purse, in favour of my children who are now capable of managing their own affairs. We will watch them and guide them. Jai Jagadamb! That was all. Welcome to this 10th and much-delayed episode of A New Republic. It has been many months since we last sat down and shared yet another episode in this fascinating history of the Indian constitution's development. Now, I'm not going to bore you with my many genuine reasons for this delay, but in true Gandhian fashion, I will ask you for your forgiveness and I promise you that every attempt will be made to revert back to our frequent publishing schedule. So, onwards we go. Last time I left you hanging from a constitutional cliff, as it were, I promised to tell you the fascinating story of a particular experiment in Gandhian constitutionalism that took place in one of the smallest princely states in India, a full 12 years before independence. Today, this event is known as the Aund Experiment. Though I must admit that this experiment is actually not particularly well known. Recently, I spoke to someone who hails from the Aund region in Western India and they had never heard of the AUND experiment. Now, I don't want to make a big deal of this. We should remember that the implications of the AUND experiment on India's eventual constitution are actually negligible. In fact, I can say with some confidence that even if the AUND experiment hadn't taken place at all, the story of uh, the Indian Republic would have rolled out in much the same way as it has afterwards. But I'm dwelling on this constitution. on the the experiment for two reasons. Like I said in the previous podcast, this is going to be the second of two stories that look at Gandhian constitutionalism. In the first, we kind of looked at the, uh, the theoretical framework of Gandhi's approach to government. In this one, we look at a practical approach. We look at what happens when such a constitution is implemented. I also want to dwell on this for a few more reasons. First, I think it is a story that deserves to be told and better known. When I first came across uh, this story during my research, I was completely fascinated. And it kind of made me wonder how many such small stories of 20th century India has been completely overwhelmed by this great freedom fighter post-colonial narrative. The narrative that, to be quite frank, kind of is kind of stuffed down our throats in school and by mass media. And secondly, I want to dwell on this story because while we keep talking about the The impracticality of a Gandhian constitution, we never really discuss or analyze it for how it might have operated. And looking at Aunt, um, and later when I did look at Aunt, I realized that it does show two, uh, or at least it shows one strength and one weakness of of the Gandhian way. And we talk about this um, later in this podcast. Now, of all the episodes of this podcast so far, this has perhaps been the hardest and least satisfying to research and source. Almost all my information about the Aund experiment comes from one book called *An Unusual Raja*, written by Appa Pant, the son of the last Maharaja of Aund. This uh, *The Unusual Raja*, a slim book of 147 pages, was published in Bombay in 1989. And Appa Pant himself passed away just two years after that. And by some miracle, I was able to source a first edition copy of this book on Amazon. I'm assuming it is from somebody's warehouse of unsold Indian books. Now, Appa Pant was one of those educated aristocratic Indians who truly lived and breathed that tryst with destiny that India experienced and Nehru talked about. After independence, he appears to have become a favourite of Pandit Nehru and, one of, and Pant went on to become one of free India's great diplomats with stints in Bhutan, Tibet, Africa and Europe. Uh, he was briefly uh, the ambassador to the United Kingdom, which I think was the top post in the Indian Foreign Service at that time. In 1954, uh, he was also a recipient of the Padmashri in the very first batch of Indians to be rewarded the Padmashri. And he won the Padmashri for his services um, to the Indian Civil Service. Thankfully for us, Pant was also a very productive writer of some merit who published several books on two main topics. His Life and Travels, And his second topic was an obsession of the royal family of Aund, which was the ancient Indian exercise, the Surya Namaskar. And one of these books was an unusual raja. And uh, that portion you heard at the beginning of this podcast, with the dramatic fanfare music, was a brief excerpt from this book. But why Aund? Who was Aund? Where was Aund? Why of all the princely states in India did Aund experiment with Gandhian constitutionalism? I was recently reading uh, Ramachandra Guha's book, uh, India After Gandhi, where he, makes a, where he makes an important point. He says that nobody precisely knows how many princely states joined India. We know that the number was approximately 500 and something. Um, nobody knows exactly how many. There were that many states. Many of them were tremendously small. Many of them were actually dirt poor and uh, utterly broke, except for maybe the royal family. Aundu was one of these really small states uh, to give a brief biography it was formed in the late 17th century when it was gifted by the maratha emperor to parishram trimbak Kinhaikar, a particularly loyal leader if you're a maratha if you're a marathi or even a maratha listener and i've got the pronunciation wrong please forgive me now trimbak Kinhaikar was the f- went on to form a brief line of kings called the pant pratinidhi dynasty who ruled over this state of Aund. And except for one mild reorganization of its border uh, in the 1850s, throughout its two and a half century existence, Aund had a more or less stationary uh, border and encompassed an area of around 1,200 square kilometers, which makes it a little more than twice the size of modern metropolitan Mumbai. In other words, Aund was a tiny, tiny state, much like many other Indian princely states, And it does not appear to have been a particularly wealthy state. It perhaps created just enough economic surplus to support a modest royal family who had a couple of cars and had enough money to send Appapanth, one of their princes, to Oxford for a degree, um, for a master's degree in law, I think. So then why was Aundh, an utterly unremarkable princely state, the location in 1938 for such a daring experiment in constitutional government, why would the Maharaja of Aund of all the states in India decide to happily hand over government to his people on the basis of this radical document? In my analysis, there appears to have been several factors. First of all, the rulers of Aund, especially the last one, Maharaja Bhavan and his son Appapanth, appear to have been progressive enough to equip the small state with a sophisticated administration. In Joseph Alter's splendidly titled book, Gandhi's Body, Sex, Diet and the Politics of Nationalism, Alter talks about how Aund went through several waves of reform between 1909 and the 1920s. For instance, Aund developed a widespread local government machine and even instituted financial reforms through a new state bank of Aund. Alter says that by 1930, every village in Aund had at least one school with special evening schools to teach children who worked during the day. And as far back as 1909, primary education had been made compulsory in Aund state. All this is very progressive, no doubt, but there was an element of self-interest and self-preservation in these reforms. The Maharaja had a very very strong motive to keep his subjects happy, at least happy enough to rebuff any British intervention, but also happy enough to repel any dabbling by dangerous Indian nationalists who considered native kings only a little bit less villainous than the foreign overlord. Also, Aund was very close to Mumbai, Pune and other hotbeds of native unrest. Throughout its history, Aund would have to deal with troublemakers who would cause problems to the British in British-controlled areas and then run across the state borders into Aund for safety. So it was, like I said, already a kind of a melting pot of ideas and revolutionary thoughts and progressive politics. The reforms in Aund were also helped along by Appa Pant, who himself came back from Oxford brimming with ideas to improve the state and actually went on to implement many of them. So, for many reasons, Aund was well-placed to experiment with government. It had educated people, a somewhat progressive aristocracy, proximity to political cauldrons, and a prince who had come back from foreign with high faluting ideas of self-government. Now, all Aund needed was a catalyst, someone who would light this fuse of uh, self-determination, let us say. And like so often in Indian history, this catalyst comes from the unlikeliest of places. It comes in the shape of someone who would later be known as Swami Bharatananda, but before that was a Jewish electrical engineer from Poland called Morris Friedman. Morris Friedman lived one of those astonishing lives that could have only been lived in that particular point in world history. He grew up in what appears to have been as an intelligent child in Poland before moving to Western Europe for the rest of his education. He became an electrical engineer and then worked at a factory where he was spotted by the Prime Minister of Mysore State. The Prime Minister asked Friedman if he would be willing to move back to Bangalore to establish a similar factory. Now, by this time, Friedman had been dabbling with spiritual pursuits for some time and had recently become enchanted by Hinduism. So this invitation was was perfect. He agreed immediately, ran back to Bangalore, set up the factory and at some point it appears that he decided to become a sanyasi and adopted the name Swami Bharatananda. He was a little bit of an eccentric, because it appears that at some point he began to dress in saffron robes, not just at home, but even while working as an electrical engineer at his factory. This upset many people in the state of Mysore, but eventually he arrived at a compromise. Uh, They said that he could wear whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, as long as he wore formals when VIPs visited the factory. And one such VIP visitor was Appapanth the Prince of Aund. Panth visited Mysore and went to this factory on an official visit, met Friedman, and was instantly fascinated. Panth writes, Within a week, Morris and I were planning innovations together. The home of my friend and host in Bangalore, Sambarao Darshane, manager of the Kidloskar showrooms in the city, became the centre to which all manners of friends of Morris, from sweepers to professors, at the Raman Institute of Fundamental Research, converged. The atmosphere hummed with new ideas and plans, for the development of village communities. Science and technology must be taken to the villages, Morris declared, and made simple for the use of peasants. Enamored by Friedman, Pant invited him to spend some time in Aund to help in the state's economic development. Friedman not only spent some time, he basically packed all his belongings and relocated to Aund. Pant of course was petrified. He said very clearly to Friedman that there was no way the state of Aund could afford Friedman's eye popping salary of rupees 3,000 a month. He told Friedman how the highest paid civil servant in all of Aund, the diwan, was paid 75 rupees a month. Friedman dismissed all these concerns. He said, all he wanted was boarding and lodging. Appa Pant accepted immediately. And thus, Morris Friedman arrived in Aund in March 1938 on the invitation of the aristocracy and before the end of the year, he had drafted the twilight of that very same aristocracy. With a cry of Jai Jagadamba, as we heard, in November 1938, the Maharaja of Aundh handed over administration to his people. The next step in this process was to write a constitution for the state of Aundh. And who better to tap for this than the great Mahatma Gandhi? In December 1938, the month after the declaration, a delegation from Aundh comprising the Maharaja, the Prince, Swami Bharatananda and a few others visited Mahatma Gandhi at Sevagram, near Vardha in the west of modern Maharashtra. As remarkable as this may sound, Mahatma Gandhi literally dictated substantial portions of the Aundh constitution in face-to-face meetings with the Aundh team. And the Maharaja seems to have received all of it with great equanimity, even the clauses that limited his income and curtailed his powers. The chapter that tells the story of the Maharaja's six-day-long encounter with Gandhi is the most entertaining in Apapan's book. It is also tremendously thought-provoking. It reveals a lot about how hard it is, even for the most well-meaning progressive monarch, to relinquish power. But most of all, it throws light on Gandhi's idea of government. His ideas of direct elections is broadly the same as the ones we've spoken about in previous episodes, where every member at every level of government owes legitimacy to winning elections from a local panchayat. Gandhi makes some other very strong statements. For instance, while he asks for universal adult suffrage, he limits it to literate citizens. Both Pant and Friedman are shocked by this. Because remember, at this point, less than one-tenth of all the adults of Aund was literate. But Gandhi is adamant. Apa, he says, democracy does not mean everyone should rush to occupy a seat of power. If everybody starts thinking of power, position or advantage, there will be chaos and conflict. And instead of democracy, you will have a demonocracy. Rama will go out of small Aundh and Ravana will enter. Do you want that? Gandhi asks. Instead, Gandhi gives the prince an audacious challenge. He says, Pass the constitution in January and then conduct the first elections in May 1939. In the intervening months, mobilize every resource in the state's power to educate at least 50% of adults with rudimentary literacy. To Punt's credit, to the prince's credit, he accepts this challenge immediately. Now, all this takes place over an undercurrent of deep British suspicion. The Aunt delegation has already miffed the British by refusing to inform the local British representatives of their meetings with the Mahatma, who by this time is a certified known troublemaker. In fact, throughout the birthing stages of the Aunt constitution, the British continue to watch on with fear and irritation. An Indian royal relinquishing power only helps to make the stubborn British government look even worse. Also, like I said before, these dramatic reforms in Aundh were making it a magnet for nationalists all over Western India. And not all of them were Gandhian or non violent. When the state constitution was passed in Aound in January 1939, it was reported everywhere. It was even reported in the Straits Times newspaper in Singapore. I was going through the archives of the Straits Times, and uh, between an advertisement for Allenbury's tasteless castor oil and a new tyre from Dunlop, this smallest of news snippets appeared with the headline New Constitution for Aound. Unsurprisingly, The report said that the new bill was moved in the Aund State Assembly by the state's Minister for Education. So now we come to the important question. Did this Gandhian constitution for Aund actually work? Because it did not lack for ambition. For instance, let me just read Article 2 of the aund State Constitution of 1939. Subject to the principles of non-violence and public morality, this constitution guarantees to every citizen of Aund freedom of person, freedom of speech liberty of the press, freedom of assembly and discussion, freedom of worship, freedom from freedom from all political disabilities arising from birth, sex, caste, religion or color, or material standing, complete equality in the eyes of law, cheap and speedy justice, universal free compulsory basic education, universal and equal suffrage for all literate adults, universal and equal right to work at a minimum living wage. The general consensus seems to be that there were three phases in the Aund experiment. The first was a phase in which even Appa Pant admits most of the citizens of aunth had no idea what was going on. They viewed this new idea of self-government with what appears to have been suspicion. As Pant himself writes, most villagers would have chosen zero taxes over self-government. Yet the state missionary itself worked with great speed. Around 50% of village panchayat budgets was spent on education. Joseph Walter says that between the most productive phase of the experiment, which is um, between 1938 and 1945, 27 new primary schools, 14 new middle schools, and 3 high schools were built and more importantly, staffed. School enrollment went up by 40%. Adult education received huge allocations too. Panth also says that the state overhauled land taxes, law and order, and public works. It seems to have been a long, arduous process, but by 1942, Panth writes, There was the glow of power on the faces of the Aund peasants. Nothing, I think, speaks of the system's success more than the fact that two and a half years after serving as the first Prime Minister of Aund, Appa Panth retired and was replaced by Ramappa Bidri, an elected farmer from one of the few Kannada-speaking villages in Aund state. Under Bidri, for the first time in three centuries, Aund was able to remove all debt from the state's books. This opening phase was followed by a second phase of business as usual up to around 1945. Until this point, the constitution seems to have genuinely empowered the villages of Aund and created, at least according to Pant, a culture of self-reliance and initiative. And then a phase of decline began due to a combination of internal and external factors. As much as Panth and his associates tried to isolate Aund from the nationalist fervour that was boiling all over India, they were actually quite powerless to prevent it. Starting with the Quit India movement, Aund slowly began to get sucked into the larger national political picture. It became a haven for troublemakers and the state was soon caught in a spot between cooperating with the British and sympathising with the nationalists, some of whom were quite extremist. But this was political instability. By 1946, the state was also beginning to collapse economically. The economic troubles of the Second World War did not leave Aundh untouched. For the first time, Pant writes, the term black market began to be bandied about in Aundh. There were shortages of food and fuel, and soon citizens began accusing elected Panchayat members and even Taluk members of hoarding, favoritism and corruption. Soon, Pant and Friedman realized the weakness of the self-reliance model. It was simply incapable of weathering larger economic turbulence. Pant writes, Morris and I both realised that the draw of self-sufficient, self-supporting and self-governing villages could not be realised as long as village life was linked to economic, sociological and political forces outside the community. The self-restraint required on consumption of goods and services that came from outside the village system was lacking. But by then, Aundu was already being swept up and being consumed by this new republic. And this enormous new republic had little time for small experiments in tiny states. It had much, much bigger fish to fry. So on March 8, 1948, a representative of the government arrived in ound with two documents. The standstill agreement and an instrument of accession. Signing both would officially hand over the state to the new union of India. The Maharaja, it is said, uttered Jai Jagadamba thrice and signed both papers. And that was the end of the Aund dynasty, established by Chhatrapati Rajaram, the second son of Shivaji the Great, when he made Parasharam Trimbak his first Pratinidhi in 1670. There is also the end of the Aund experiment, a fleeting moment in Indian constitutional history when a tiny, tiny state dabbled in Gandhian constitutionalism. I think the Aund experiment highlights some of the inherent strengths and weaknesses of the Gandhian constitution. So on the one hand, it kind of amplifies the strengths, the positive attributes of the village economy, of the village society. It makes people more um, self-sufficient. It it energizes them in a way to build their own institutions, to maintain their own institutions. And as we have seen with the case of Rama Pabidri, it is capable of open-mindedness and uh, strengthening uh, minorities, let us say. On the other hand, the Gandhian constitution also has weaknesses. And I think the greatest weakness is that it is incapable of dealing with larger economic and political trends that simply cannot be controlled by the village economy. The only way the village economy can, can repulse these trends is to shut itself down completely. Which I think was also the legitimate worry of many of our constitution builders when they considered the Gandhian constitution. It was simply too inward looking and too self-absorbed. And which would make it tremendously weak. But that's enough of my analysis. I hope some of you, especially those with family in the Aund region in modern-day Satra district, will be inspired to go out and pick up the pieces of the story. For those keen to read more on the functioning of the constitution, the best book seems to be Indira Rotarman's The Aund Experiment, Gandhian Grassroots Democracy, published in 1984. I don't think there's been a reprint, so you might have to track down an old copy. So that's it for two episodes that looked at Gandhian constitutionalism very sketchily, but I hope it kind of scratches the surface and inspires you to read up more. Next time we resume our normal programming, we go back to our international canvas of politics and intrigue and carry on with the story of a new republic. Farewell, take care, and I promise, see you soon.